Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your most holy word. Lord, we thank you that Solomon wrote these words inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so these words were for his day, and these words are for our day. They are wise words to which we would do well to pay attention. And so I pray that we would do exactly that in these next minutes. Lord, we place ourselves under your word. We want to submit to it. We want to allow it to speak truth to us. And we want to follow it. And so we pray that you would impress these words onto our hearts very deeply, very securely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's two words. They were in the fourth verse there. Favor and success, favor and success. Two things that are important to most of us are that one, we want to be thought well of by other people, we want to enjoy the favor of people, and two, we want to be successful. These are our two aspirations that become part of our fabric, right from when we are young. We want to be liked, we want to fit in, We just want to be part of the crowd. We just want people to like us and to think well of us. A natural sort of desire. And and there's a time when we orient our lives around that desire. Nothing else really matters except that we want people to like us. And then secondly, we want people to view us as being successful. Whether that's as a spouse or as a parent or, or in sports or in our job or in whatever pursuit we go after. We want to be good at it, and we want people to notice that we're good at it. This desire kicks in a little bit later for most people, but it too starts when we are young. And there's a connection between the two. If people think well of us, if we enjoy people's favor, if we get accolades from others, we're well on the way to being successful in the eyes of those same people. Actually, it's these same two things that are political candidates will be working towards in the next couple of months, right? 
They'll be trying to gain your favor so that when we get to October 19th, you will check their name on, or that particular party on your ballot. They'll be trying to gain your favor by telling you how their plan will be successful. They want to gain your favor. Well, the book of Proverbs right there in the heart of your Bibles actually tells us that it's not totally off base to desire favor and success in the eyes of other people. Does that surprise you? Proverbs 3, 4 makes a promise that if you act a certain way, you will find favor and success in the sight of man. And even Jesus himself, our Savior, is described in Luke 2.52 as increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man. Jesus, as a young person, was thought well of by the people that were around him. But if you looked at any of those passages, those two that I just read, either Luke 2.52 or Proverbs 3.4, you will have noticed that I left out an important part of those verses. And the part that I left out is not incidental or unimportant. In fact, leaving that out actually gets to a big part of what this whole passage in Proverbs 3, 1 to 12 is all about, what it warns us about in our quest to acquire wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, it's how we put our knowledge into action. It's one way I described it. We need wisdom in the journey that is our lives. We need wisdom as we make our way down the road that is our life. And from the perspective of a Christian, wisdom has to include the fear of the Lord. We've seen that from these wisdom psalms, and we've seen it in Proverbs 1, verse 7, where it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So from a Christian perspective, wisdom could also be defined as the skill or the aptitude for living in the fear of the Lord. The skill for living in the fear of God. But even as Christians, we sometimes leave that part out. In fact, we often leave that part out, the part that includes the fear of the Lord. So back to Jesus, it says that when he was young, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. And Proverbs 3, 4 says, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. That has to be the order. But how often do we seek to find favor only with man? We can so easily forget God. Now, we would never purposely do that. We would never say that we do that. But in reality, I know there are times when I care about, more about what other people think than what God thinks. Well, Proverbs 3, verses 1 to 12 will remind us not to exclude God in our quest for wisdom. Those warnings actually bracket this passage at both ends. And they're framed again as this kind of um, a pleading urgency from a father to his young son. My son, do not forget my teaching. And then down in verse 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or, or be weary of his reproof. This father is saying, son, make sure you don't forget what I'm teaching you. This is important. This is an important time of your life when you're young and and I'm trying to build into you. The word for teaching there is actually Torah in the Hebrew, which means law. Don't, Don't forget my laws. These things are important. 
Do not forget my teaching. This father is acknowledging that to forget his teachings is, is actually a genuine threat in our lives. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it. As soon as you get out in the world, son, so much stuff is going to come at you that you might forget my teachings. They might get drowned out. He's saying, my son, keep these things somewhere where you can retain them, where you can grab them when you need them. Let your heart, that's the place, keep my commandments. And the heart in the Hebrew mind is actually that idea of of the mind, of the brain, of the intellect. And he says here that that should be the keeping place of the commandments. And so when it says, keep my commandments here, it's not so much here thinking of the idea of obeying the commandments, but of having them somewhere where they can be accessed quickly. That's what the father is trying to get into the head of his son. Don't forget my teaching. Get it into your head and let it sink in so that uh, once you've got it in there, you, you can get it when you need it. But this is also what our Heavenly Father is trying to get into the heads and to the hearts of all his children. Keep my words at the top of the list of essentials for living. Don't let them slip down the list of importance. As you walk through life, you're going to need them if you want to make it. If you want to have the tools, if you want to have the skills to be able to live in a godly way in this world. And it's not only God's words that he wants us not to forget, but his characteristics. You're going to need those too. Look down at verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Those qualities describe God, don't they? Many places in the Bible. That's what God is like. He is loyal in his affections. He is completely trustworthy. And that's, then, what we're supposed to be like. We need to take on those characteristics of God. Colossians 3, verse 12 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you, must, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Don't let those qualities forsake you. Wear them. Bind them around your neck like, like a necklace. Get them written on the tablet of your heart. And, and when you write them down, put them in permanent marker. And when you do that, son, you will gain two things. When you do that, children, God is saying you'll gain two things. In verse 2, for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. He's saying, son, if you remember this stuff that I'm telling you, it'll go well with you. You'll enjoy happiness and peace. Charles Bridges says, peace added provides sunshine for the toilsome way. You're going to meet up with all kinds of stuff as you make your way through life. But if my words are in there, in your heart, in your mind, then you'll be able to handle it. It'll all be good. Secondly, in verse 4, it says you'll find favor and good success. These verses that we talked about already. And whose eyes in the sight of God 
and man. When you get God's word and when you get God's character into you, you will enjoy the favor of man. But first and foremost, you'll enjoy the favor of God. You'll enjoy a good standing, upwardly and outwardly, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. You will have a good upstanding and a good outstanding. So be careful not to exclude God as you live your life in every area. And now God, through these wise words from King Solomon, is going to give us two ways to ensure that God is included in our quest for wisdom, in our quest for favor, in our quest for good success. There are two ways that we need to regard God if we want to keep him central in our lives. And as Christians, I think we would all say we want to do that, wouldn't we? We'd all say, I want to keep God central in my life, central in my marriage, central at my work, whatever it is. But we often forget in our humanness. We often forget and we often forsake. So this is straightforward and maybe obvious, but we need this simple and profound wisdom. One way to be God-centered is to trust in the Lord. You see those words in verse 5. And then the second is to honor the Lord, starting at verse 9. So first, trust in the Lord. Now, when you start at verse 5 there, these are very familiar words there in verses 5 and 6, verses that you might have memorized at some point. Look at them again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths or he will direct your paths is the way that I learned it. But let's, um, let's just take these familiar words and, and, and maybe slice and dice them a little bit and see how they fit here in this context of ensuring that we do not exclude God from our daily lives and from our affections. Sometimes we make things too complicated when we look at God's word, but sometimes we can simplify things maybe a little bit too much as well. Uh, With these great verses, we can sometimes be guilty of just taking this to mean that we have to um, feel God's closeness and just generally feel good about God. And then these promises will be ours. And when it says acknowledge God in all your ways, we take it to mean that we just need to agree that he's always with us. Just need to make sure we know that he's there. And if we're doing that, we're obeying this. And all of that is true to some degree, but it's, I think, a little bit more than that. To trust God with all all your heart is to put total confidence in God's wisdom and in God's word for every single part of our lives. Trust God with all your heart. It literally means to, to trust means to lie down, uh, lie face down on something. So it's that picture of of being helpless and totally relying on something else to hold us up. That should be our posture toward God. Your confidence should rest totally and exclusively on him and on his word for wisdom and for understanding, for uh, perspective, for advice, for counsel. As you do that, you are turning away from any confidence in yourself. Why? Because we know that we are flawed in our understanding, and that God is perfect. And so in a larger sense, this is, this is what we do when we get saved, right? It's putting our confidence in Jesus. It's turning away from ourselves. And if Jesus comes through for us, we're, we're saved forever. And if he doesn't, we're lost forever. 
Praise the Lord, Jesus came through. And, and now you turn away from yourself and you, and you let your full weight down on him, as it were, in complete trust and reliance. Do not lean on your own understanding. You see, our, our own understanding is not trustworthy. Our own hearts are desperately wicked, and so our hearts need to be turned toward God. Just listen to a couple of verses from a couple of different places. Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Or later on in Proverbs, verse, chapter 28, verse 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs never pulls any punches, right? Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Don't trust in your own heart. That's what's at issue in this verse. Who's, whose understanding is going to rule your life? Will it be God's wisdom, or are you going to try to do it on your own wisdom? And if you are, how's that working out for you? When we try to get advice from someone who's wise, lots of times it's just to confirm a decision we already made, isn't it? It's how evil we can be, depraved we can be. If that biblical counsel or even the Bible itself doesn't agree with your previous decision, then your own understanding usually determines where you're going to go and who you're going to listen to. Are you like that? Are you just looking for advice that agrees with what you've already decided? If you do that, you're really just leaning on your own understanding. You're not willing to hear something contrary, something where God's word might just challenge your own understanding. Are you willing to let God overrule your thinking? Charles Bridges again says, Beware of false guides by which he means trusting in your own or leaning on your own understanding. In all your ways, then, it says, acknowledge him. Consult God all the time in every step that you take. In all your ways. Go to his word. Include him in every step. Go to him at the beginning. Don't, don't try everything else in your understanding first and then go to God as a last resort. How often we're guilty of this. How often I'm guilty of this. Go to him before you rely on your own wisdom. Go to him before you go to your friends. Go to him before you go to your most trusted human counselor. Go to him in the first place. Include him in all your ways, in all your pursuits. Another writer I read this week said, God is too massive to agree to be confined to some small space. God is very interested in how you and I conduct ourselves 24 hours a day in every room of the house and down every street and every byway of the city. A knowledge of God that leaves no imprint on all of life is a barren, fruitless, and useless theoretical faith. It's not faith that's on the ground, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then there's the promise. He will make straight your path. He'll, he'll keep you on the right path. He, he won't let you veer all over the place and try 
you know, maybe that way of worldly wisdom over there on the left or, or, or that immoral way over there on the right or that foolish decision off to the northwest. He'll keep you on target. That's the promise. But then it goes back to warning us about taking our eyes off God, about the foolishness of excluding God and not centering our lives in Him. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You can still sort of hear the echoes of that father pleading here, can't you? Son, don't turn away from God and don't turn away from His word. Don't turn away from His counsel. Never get to the place where you think you know better than God. When you think that you can make your way through life by ignoring God's counsel, don't be wise in your own eyes. Keep pursuing God's wisdom. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Being wise in your own eyes is, does the exact opposite, doesn't it? Eventually, you'll, you won't fear God, but you'll disregard God. And eventually, you won't turn away from evil, you'll turn toward evil. But if you fear God and turn away from evil, there's another promise again in verse 8. And that's that it'll it'll go well with you. Trying to have the abundant life without God is the epitome of foolishness. Oh yeah, you you know, you might say, it hasn't worked that way for me. You know, you you might have a little bit of temporary, short-term fun. But listen, that's, That's just a a short-sighted view. Turn away from evil, it says, and it'll be healing and refreshing. Now, we could think of lots of examples where the opposite is true, right? How about, you know, you want to go to a party or you want to go out on a bender. Lots of fun, isn't it? But tell me how you felt the next day. Would you describe your body as feeling healed and refreshed? Didn't think so. Or how about this example? In the last couple of days, some of you may have heard about this website where um, people could register if they wanted to have an affair. Ashley Madison, is that the name of it? Something like that? And, and the amount of people that are registered on that list is staggering. I think somewhere I read that it was, um, if, if the number, whatever the number that are registered on Facebook, it'd be like one out of every ten people that's registered on Facebook was registered on this Ashley Madison site. And, and all of it for some foolish illusion of a temporary thrill. But how do those people feel the next day? And especially now that this system has been hacked and everyone knows. My son, children of God, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Well, let's just go to the second way to, that we can ensure that God is included in our quest for wisdom. The first was to trust in the Lord. The second, starting in verse 9, is to honor the Lord. Look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Okay, now we might be getting into a bit of a touchy, controversial subject, right, for church. This is talking about our stuff. This is talking about our wealth, our material goods, our resources, our 
our, our discretionary funds, our, our money, our investments. This might be the area more than anything else, though, where we have a tendency to exclude God. This might be the area more than anything else where we have a tendency to exclude God. And so God here doesn't let us off the hook. He gets right into that area. He gets right into our our grill. Some of you might be thinking, oh boy, you had to bring that up, didn't you? Well, all I can say to that is that God brought it up just as we're working our way through Proverbs. It surprised me when I got there too. Here it is in black and white. Honor the Lord with your wealth. This is... This is not telling us here to give money to the church or to missions or to charities or to the poor, although there are other passages that talk about that. It's, it's not telling us how much money we ought to give. It's just saying, honor the Lord with your wealth. The challenge is, are you honoring God with your stuff? When it comes to your possessions, where is God in all of that? Do you give any thought to him as you decide how to use your resources? Do you even acknowledge that he ultimately is the giver of everything that you've got? Or is your attitude more like, I worked hard for this stuff, therefore I get to decide what to do with it? If that's the way you think about your wealth, return to verse 7. And you might just fall into the category of being wise in your own eyes. Do not exclude God. In fact, this is saying that you not just include God, but that he ought to get the best of what you've got. He deserves the best cut of meat, not the leftover gristle. He deserves the first fruits of your produce, not not the rotten bananas that you're going to throw into your banana bread. To honor the Lord with your wealth means that he gets the first and the best, not the leftovers, and only if I've got something left once I take care of my leisure and my vacation and all the other stuff. Honoring God with your wealth doesn't mean he's down there somewhere on your monthly spending list. He's right up there at the top. Any less would be to dishonor God and to exclude God from your wealth. It would actually be the opposite of honoring God, honoring the Lord. It would be trifling with God, trivializing him. Ray Ortland puts the challenge this way. He asks, as God looks at your financial priorities, should he consider himself honored or slighted? As God looks at your budget, as he looks at your priorities, should he consider himself honored or slighted? Now, what does this look like, especially when he says, from the first fruits of all your produce? Could this possibly mean for us that this is talking about our gross income rather than we often think about it as our net income? Now, I'm not sure, just throwing that out there based on this passage. He wants the first fruits of all of it. He wants the best part of the whole thing. Not this, the part that after you've given the government its due. Listen, when we talk about this, we, we, we tend to get a little bit into the, or, or the cringe factor sometimes enters in, doesn't it? We cringe when we start talking about giving. At least I do. Some people have given uh, Christianity a bad name by making these sort of constant appeals for money. But we can't get away from the fact that the Bible does make those kinds of associations. A lot. But the associations are because of, ultimately, the gospel. It's all connected. It's all interconnected. God has given us of his immense heavenly riches. He's given them to us freely. He's given them to us sacrificially. He gave up his very own son. 
He, he's actually given us honor when we deserve nothing but shame. How then could we be tight-fisted toward God and toward others? 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Is that talking about money? No, it's talking about he had all the spiritual riches. He was God. He condescended for your sake. He became poor, so that you, by his poorness, by his poverty, might become rich spiritually. You might all get all the blessings of heaven. To be wise, to honor God, is to be generous. Especially if you're a child of God and have received the amazing gift of God in the person of his Son. Anything less is folly. Luke 12, Jesus told a parable of a man who decided to hoard his riches and to store it all away. This man says, my soul talked to my, his soul talked to himself, basically. He says, you have ample things laid up for many years. It stored it all away, and he says, oh, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That's what he tells himself. That's his advice to himself. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, he says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Notice two things. God calls him a fool, opposite of being wise, and his problem is that he's not rich toward God. Honor God with your wealth. And again, a wonderful incentive there and promise of blessing in verse 10. By the way, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is just generalizations here. It says, you honor the Lord and things will go well for you. Trust the Lord and it'll be all good. Now I'll leave it to you how to figure out how to apply this principle in your own life of honoring the Lord with your wealth. But I will be bold enough to ask that you consider your local church as one way to honor God with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. That's biblical. Well, how does this section end? It it ends kind of like it started, doesn't it? Look down at verse 11. My son, do not. Those four words were in verse 1, and they're again down there in verse 11. My son, do not. Now it says, do not exclude. uh, Before it said, do not exclude God in regard to his word. But now it says, do not exclude God in regard to his discipline. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. One of the ways that God will remind us that he's there, that he's to be kept at the center of our lives, not at the periphery, is through his loving discipline. This is just another form of teaching and training for God's children. In fact, discipline is, is a word that means training. This, is, this, though, is a little bit more of uh, education with force, education with, with pow. <laughs> this is forceful education. And, and this is saying, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't get weary of his reproof. Rather, it says, embrace it. And so when God puts hardship into your life, 
it might actually be an indication of his love of us and his delight in us. In fact, it is, as his children. Just think about this. A father would be unkind and unloving if he would just casually allow his children to walk aimlessly towards danger and destruction. No, he's going to stop them, isn't he? Maybe even with some oomph. If you're wandering aimlessly into sin, he might stop you. And it might be painful. But be glad for this means of grace. This is a means of God's grace from the hand of your heavenly Father. So if you're a Christian, do not despise this display of God's love. Realize that God is conforming you into the image of his Son. Someone has said that the Lord's discipline is God's most endearing role. It's God's most endearing role. God is not going to give up in getting you to learn what he wants you to learn. Aren't you happy for that? God will not give up in getting you to learn what he wants you to learn. Embrace his discipline. Embrace his reproof. And that's what this whole section in Proverbs 3, 1 to 12 is all about. God here is endearing himself towards you. He wants to ensure that you receive his, his fatherly loving care. He, he comes to you in love, pleading with you, saying, do not forget my teaching. As you traverse your way through life, as you make your way down the way, don't forget me. Don't forget my teaching. Do not refuse my discipline, my, my training. Don't try to live your life without me. That way is a dead end. Rather, if you want to find favor and good success in the sight of God and man, well, trust in me with all your heart. Honor me with all of your stuff. This is the way of wisdom. Our God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for uh, reminders of your presence. We are, we admit, ashamed that we need those reminders. But in our humanness, we admit that we are often prone to wander. We are prone to forget the one that has created us, the one that has revealed his word to us, the one that has reached down and sent his son to redeem us. Thank you for this reminder this morning to not forget your teaching, to not refuse your discipline. Thank you for this word of wisdom. Cause us to pay attention to this and to heed this word, not to just leave here and forget all about it and then just go on with our lives the way we did before. We thank you most of all for your great display of wisdom in the person of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May may we arrange our lives around him and around your word. In Jesus' name, amen.